This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus is quoted as saying, the only thing that is constant is change. Between globalization and fast-evolving technology, that truism is very applicable today. To be successful and gain a competitive advantage in our rapidly changing world takes continuous education. A new book describes how to integrate dynamic learning and provides an outline to the methods of becoming more effective as a lifelong learner. The book is titled, Never Stop Learning, Stay Relevant, Reinvent Yourself, and Thrive. Author Bradley Statz is a professor of operations at the Keenan Flagner Flagler Business School at the University of North Carolina, and he joins us right now on the phone, as does Mukul Pandya, who's editor-in-chief and executive director of Knowledge at Wharton. Bradley, thanks for joining us today. Sure thing, Dan. Glad to be here. Thank you, Mukul. Great to see you. Great to be here, Dan. Thank you. So, Bradley, why the problem with learning? You, you talk about that kind of as, a, as an issue that we have in general these days. I do. And and so it's looking at, I think you made the case uh, beautifully of why we need to learn, right? If we fail, we risk becoming irrelevant. You know, we solve yesterday's problems you know, too late instead of actually tackling tomorrow's. Um, but the issue is it turns out we're, we're bad at learning. Uh, we're supremely bad. Um, and that, in fact, we are often our own worst enemies. Uh, that instead of doing the things that will help us learn, uh, we do just the opposite. And so my research, my work with companies, the book um, is really about trying to understand this. You know, what is it that we need to do? Um, why kind of does our behavior often take us in the wrong direction? Um, and then importantly, what can we do about it? So you, you write, Bradley, uh, uh, that we are supremely bad at learning. And as you said, we are our own worst enemies. Why is that the case? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I think, you know, we can break it down in a, in a number of different dimensions, which I try to do in the book. But, but fundamentally, it often comes to this, that we often end up being very short-term focused. And the thing that we do in the moment isn't the thing that's going to help us learn in the longer term. Um, and so we can, you know, take, you know, a given action. Let's think about failure as an example. Um, that, you know, of course, we want to avoid failure. We don't like when things go wrong. It's not comfortable for us. Um, but we also recognize that if we're going to innovate and accomplish new things, it's not always going to work the first time. Um, but because of that, you know, fear of failure that many of us have and that our organizations often impose on people, um, we end up, you know, never trying that new thing, never moving in a direction that might actually allow us to create something um, quite extraordinary. Right. You talk about valuing failure, Bradley. Uh, so in terms of that word valuing, how does that play out? I mean, I think it's an appreciation that, you know, failure is a, a means to an end where that end is learning. Um, in the book, kind of I, I talk about, you know, why we don't do it, right, and why we aren't uh, willing to try new things. And some of it is that kind of fear of failure, um, that kind of atikophobia is what it would be if it were clinical. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the emotion we get, um, kind of the anxiety and shame where we're afraid of that, um, that we often, as a result, overemphasize the negative outcome. Um, we think so much about what can go wrong that we don't spend enough time thinking about what can go right. Um, and then sometimes we even, you know, neglect to see what's going on around us. We kind of 
reinterpret the environment uh, in order to make us think everything's okay when it's going poorly. And so valuing failure really means, you know, being open to the environment that we're in. I love, there's a great quote from Ed Catmull uh, that, where he talks about, hey, look, mistakes are not a necessary evil. They aren't evil at all. They're an inevitable consequence of doing something new. And I think that gets to this point of valuing failure. You know, it's not that we're eagerly seeking out um, how to do things wrong intentionally so, uh, but rather um, when we talk about, you know, these mantras of fail fast or kind of ready, fire, aim, um, it's a recognition of, hey, we've got to get it out there. We've got to be willing to try that new thing um, and then see what happens, learn from it and adjust. Your book says that uh, in order to stay relevant, we must become dynamic learners. Yep. Uh, what, what is dynamic learning, and is there a process that we can follow to become dynamic learners? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. I mean, from, from my standpoint, dynamic learning really involves four steps um, that, uh, that I think we need to see. It, and it's around um, kind of what I'll call the four Fs. The first is, is focus. Um, choosing which topics that we're going to learn. Um, it's a recognition that, you know, as is the case in many areas, um, what are we going to say no to enabling us to say yes to things? Um, and so, you know, where are we going to gain that deeper knowledge? Where are we going to have an impact? And so that means picking an area moving in that direction. Um, the second step is, is fast. Um, kind of acceleration rate matters. Once we've selected kind of what we're running after, um, then, you know, we need to be able to move in that correct direction and get up to speed quickly in doing so, right? That it's not, you know, great, I'll be back to you in three years um, with uh, my approach here, uh, but rather kind of, you know, I'm doing it on the order of uh, often, you know, days, weeks, months. Um, then there's a recognition of the continuous nature of this, that we've got to be frequent um, in our learning, um, that you know, opportunities uh, present themselves at unexpected times uh, or unexpected places. And so we need to constantly be looking at you know, how we can improve what we're doing, um, how we might recognize a need to change directions, which is really the last principle around flexibility, um, that yes, we're picking an area to run at right now, um, but that doesn't mean that we're going to get it right every time. And in fact, you know, a dynamic learner recognizes that, you know, they're often going to get it wrong. Um, and so just as we quickly accelerate, we're willing to decelerate, kind of change the direction and move to that next opportunity. And so, you know, if we can focus, if we can be fast, if we can be frequent, if we can be flexible, then we start to build out our toolkit um, around dynamic learning. Uh, that that's a great explanation of what dynamic learning is, and so so how what's the process we can follow to become dynamic learners? Yeah, so it's a great point, and and you know in the book that's what I try to explore uh, is you know kind of these different steps that we need to take, and in the book kind of I lay out um, kind of really eight elements um, that make up dynamic learning. And so I'll kind of mention them and then happy to, we can dive in kind of where y'all would like to go. Um, the first is this idea of failure um, that I was talking about, a willingness to try things, um, you know, have them not work out, but learn from that and move on. Um, the second um, is an appreciation that 
process really matters. This shouldn't be shocking to hear from you know an operations professor, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know too often as learners uh, we focus only on the outcome rather than the process. Um, and we know that you know hey look sometimes you can get a good outcome and have done all the things wrong you just got lucky. Sometimes you did it all right and it didn't work out for you. And so if we don't focus on the process we're never going to to get to a good spot. Um, Third is around asking questions um, that you know, we tend to rush to answers. We tend to you know, think we need to know, you know, go, 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 but actually pulling ourselves back to ask questions. And then fourth, related to that, being willing to reflect, being willing to think, um, following some advice from a mentor of mine, right, not avoiding thinking by being busy. Um, then kind of the next two are really around ourselves. Um, recognizing this need to, to not be a poor imitation of others, but to be ourselves to learn. What are those things that really energize us, um, that allow us to bring kind of our best selves um, to work, um, which is related to the sixth point um, that we really need to play to our strengths. Um, that, you know, unfortunately, we often think of learning um, as a story of how do I fix the things that are wrong instead of, right, what are those things that I'm great at? What are, uh, you know, the elements that differentiate me that kind of think of it as your personal competitive advantage? Right. How do I build those out? Um, the last two kind of quickly um, are thinking about one's range, but also um, kind of the depth of knowledge, specialization and variety. Um, that as learners, I would suggest we need to aim to be T-shaped. And what I mean by that is that we have a depth of knowledge in certain topics. It may not just be one, um, but also we're willing to appreciate breadth and that it's not either or between those two, but very much it's and. Um, the final piece that goes into the puzzle, um, from my perspective, um, is the critical role of others. Um, that you know, not only um, can others, of course, educate us and provide valuable knowledge, but in the back and forth, um, we realize you know both what we know um, in kind of more detail um, and kind of where there are opportunities for us to do even more. And so, as we step through those eight different elements, then we have a chance to accomplish this goal of dynamic learning. Bradley Stad is our guest. He is the author of the book Never Stop Learning, Stay Relevant, Reinvent Yourself, and Thrive. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON 844-942-7866 or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So let's dive into a couple of these, if we can, Bradley. And the one that I will start with seemingly is a relatively simple concept, is asking questions. Yep. You would think that that is about as basic as you can possibly get when you're talking about a, a kind of being involved in a business and, and trying to advance your career, yet at times it's not. Yeah, no, it's often not, right? And, and I think you know, that is something that has been fascinating to me um, in working with companies is trying to understand, well, well why don't we speak up? Um, and, and I think what the research shows is, is there are a couple of different um, kind of big reasons. Um, one class of reasons just goes into this general busyness problem we have, that we have so much going on, kind of we have you know, alarm bells going off in our head when we're looking at something that, you know, and you know what, this isn't quite right, I need to deal with this, 
I, you know, the next thing on my to-do list is here, or the next meeting alert is going off, or the phone's ringing, yeah. and so we just keep running, right? Right. Um, and so there's this element of, of busyness um, that we have to step back and, and actually kind of look at our calendars. Are we dealing with the important, or are we kind of in that classic world of we're just dealing with the urgent? Um, I think the second piece, though, um, is is one that, that needs a little more unpacking, which is around kind of self-censoring. You know, here, kind of, we have the time to ask the question, we're sitting in that meeting, and we choose not to put our hand up. Um, yeah. And that's really driven by two things. One is... Um, incorrectly think about how people are going to judge us for asking questions. Yep. We think that, you know, if I say I don't know, that, you know, it'll sort of be like being back in elementary school and the kids will laugh, <laughs> of, haha, you know, couldn't answer a teacher's question or something. Um, when instead what's fascinating, and the research shows this quite compellingly, when we ask questions, people like us more. They see us as curious. They see us, assuming it's a legitimate question, as engaging them, right, the, the nominal expert, now they get to feel. Um, and so kind of there's tremendous value in overcoming that. There, some of my favorite research on the topic looked at speed dating, and it showed that people who asked more questions were more likely to get dates. Uh, so kind of broad lessons, not just for organizational life, but perhaps you know, outside of the organization as well. Um, the other element, though, around self-censoring is sometimes we don't realize that we need to ask a question, um, that we end up really kind of lacking an accurate picture of our surroundings. And this is where some of the different cognitive biases that have showed um, up over the last kind of 20 to 30 years in research um, really can be highlighted, right? And so you can think about something like, you know, the selective attention test, the, the fact that kind of we, we tend to only identify certain things and fail to fail to realize what we're missing, the classic one being the gorilla walking through the picture or the person with an umbrella. Um, and again, this is related to we get so focused on individual pieces um, and on kind of the tree that we miss the forest. And so there's an element of stepping back, right? It's okay to ask questions, but also kind of reminding ourselves, hey, what should I be looking for here? What should I be asking questions about if I really want to understand it? Uh, no, that that's great. Thank you, Bradley. Uh, you know, as you were going down the list of uh, steps you need to take to become dynamic uh, learners, uh, the part that I was very intrigued by was uh, the role that rest and relaxation play in improving our ability to learn. And I was wondering if you could sort of unpack that for our listeners a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know. I, I think it's fair to say that we, we almost have an activity bias these days that, um, you know, we, we think that uh, if we're not doing something, um, then there's a problem, right? Um, you know, we kind of get jittery if we can't reach a phone. Right. Um, you know, we recently had uh, a colleague join from industry, um, and, uh, you know, it had taken a little while for somebody to respond to an email, and he was asking me about this. Um, and it, it hadn't been, it'd been, I don't know, a couple hours. Um, and I said, you know, what is it about that, that that seems so long? And he said, well, in his prior organization, kind of you were measured by the speed at which you replied to emails um, to answer different questions. And you can think for a second about how, you know, in, in one sense that shows eagerness. In another sense, is your fastest answer always going to be the right answer and the best way to move forward? And the answer is probably not, right? And so with this activity bias, you know, 
we have to recognize that it exists, that while we want to be seen to be doing something, um, that it can be problematic. My favorite example of that from research um, comes from the world of soccer um, and uh, shooting penalty kicks. So um, relevant with the Women's World Cup, just having finished, um, that uh, what uh, these researchers did was they, they looked at at goalies, um, and they looked at the data for these were professional male goalies of their diving, right? Did they dive to the left or the right? And they found it was basically split even. Almost all the time they dove um, one direction. Occasionally they stayed in the middle only about 6% of the time. But when they looked at the kicks, they found that the kicks were spread roughly equally, kind of left, down the middle, yeah. over to the right. Um, and so they went back to the goalies and they said, hey, guess what? If you stay in the middle, you can stop more goals, right? Um, this would be beneficial, be an optimal strategy. You know, mix it in sometimes. Dive sometimes, stay put sometimes. And basically the goalies told the researchers, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I, I see the data. I believe the data. I'm not going to do that. And when yeah. kind of, you know, they dug in why, you know, it was, well, I would regret not diving, right? If I, have, if I dive, my face is in the dirt. I'm chewing on some grass. Everybody's going to agree I did everything I could. Um, but if I just stand there, you can think of, you know, what, what the heck, Brad? Like, you're not even going to try to stop the ball. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think that's how we do organizational life. Um, and so to your point, McCool, we have to be willing to actually pull back and take some of that time to both rest and then to reflect. The other uh, part that I wanted to bring up was, was about learning from others, and, and it plays off of what I had just asked you about asking questions, because I would think if if there is more of an open feeling about asking questions, then not only is the person that asked the question going to learn, but others around them in a meeting, in, a, in an office setting, those are the people that are going to learn as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Right. I mean, this is the classic. You know, when when you ask the question, odds are there are a handful of other people in that same meeting that also are wondering about it, um, and so you're making it okay. I mean, one of the things that uh, as a leader, um, you know, uh, making it clear and rewarding people who ask questions, um, so that others recognize, oh, asking a difficult question isn't you know going to get the messenger shot, um, but it's going to be seen as an attractive behavior. Um, you know, what's interesting, we often think tasks are far more individual than they really are. Um, and so we get obsessed with our little component, failing to see kind of the broader, the broader element. Um, and so, you know, when we work with others, yes, we have the ability to ask them questions. What's interesting is we also have the ability to share what we know. Um, and not only does that help them of now we've given them some knowledge, um, but we've done research looking at the power of teaching uh, and basically showing, you know, in, in an organizational environment, when I teach others, I learn my own material better too, right? I understand, you know, that product design or, you know, the strategic plan, whatever it might be, um, with more detail. And so incorporating kind of others in all facets, whether it's me asking questions, whether it's me sharing my knowledge, whether it's me gaining from others, um, is huge as we think about dynamic learning. So in addition to all these wonderful things that we can do as individuals, uh, what steps do you think organizations can take to become better environments for learning? And I wonder if you could give us any examples of companies that you think are really good at this and what others could learn from them. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I think there are a number of things um, that organizationally um, we see being done. Um, you know, one I would highlight is, is work that Deloitte has been doing um, around the kind of performance review process. 
Um, so I mentioned earlier kind of this challenge we have of needing to highlight um, kind of the process versus the outcome. And if we think about kind of a traditional annual review process, um, often one that involves stacked rankings, um, then unfortunately um, it easily becomes a what have you done for me lately. Um, Deloitte in kind of re-architecting their performance review process not only kind of took away kind of that um, stacked ranking in, in a lot of areas, um, but looked to make it kind of an ongoing effort. So it wasn't, uh, hey, at the end of the year, we're now going to invest a million hours in this across everyone. But what if we did that, you know, across the entire year? Every couple weeks, you have a check-in uh, with your leader, maybe every week, depending on the project. That we've got mentors in place, coaches in place that are helping you, um, guide you through this. Um, and so suddenly, if you're having a conversation every two weeks, you actually have insight into the process, right? You start to get some measurement of how the person's spending their time, what they're doing, how it might help them. And it's a lot easier to understand that than, you know, it, it's not unreasonable if all you do is look at the end of 12 months. It's, it's hard to know, well, what did they actually do over the course of that day? Um, and so I think that that's one of the areas that we see a lot of attention going into um, of thinking about what development looks like. Um, the other one I'd highlight um, is, uh, as an example, is, is this idea of strengths, right? And so, um, you know, to stick with Deloitte there, we, we did some work with them looking at you know, how can we help people discover their strengths, um, in particular as they come into the organization? How can we do things to help them use those strengths? Um, and we know that strengths in their use is a critical determinant of employee engagement, um, but as organizations being very active um, in bringing those out um, and making sure that people are really getting that opportunity. Uh, uh, that that's great, uh, Bradley. And, and one other thing that I was wondering is that company uh, a good opportunity for learning seems to be that companies these days collect so much data about so many things, yep. and and they use analytics uh, to 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 sort of uh, get make sense of that data. How do you think companies can learn better from data and analytics, uh, and and use that to make be- sound decisions? And I wonder if you could offer any examples of that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I I think that you're absolutely right that kind of the world of people analytics um, has opened up all sort of exploration. I mean, in in it's funny my my research I would now refer to a good chunk of it as people analytics. Um, when kind of I started it 15 years ago, that was not a term that was being used. Uh, and so I think what it highlights is we have a chance to understand what drives performance um, in a good way. We have a chance to understand what gets in the way of performance. Um, And so, you know, I think, uh, you know, a number of the different organizations we've worked with, um, you know, Wipro Technologies um, has been eager to understand, hey, what sets people up for success, Um, whether that's individually, whether that's as a project team, and then trying to get the data knowledge together with the business knowledge and really forging those two together, that in too many places, these things are pulled apart still, whether it's, you know, kind of, if you think we need HR, we need analytics, and we need business domain expertise, and finding a way to bring them um, kind of into the proverbial same room. Um, So we not only understand the data, but then we start to change policies um, 
ideally in a way that's kind of an A-B testing experimental type. Let's, let's see if this actually makes life better or not. Um, but closing that feedback cycle to very quickly iterate through, we learned something, we tried to adapt to it, did it work, um, now let's do it again. Great to have you with us on the show today, Bradley. Good luck with the book. Thank you for your time. All the best. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Bradley Stats. The book is titled Never Stop Learning, Stay Relevant, Reinvent Yourself, and Thrive. It is available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now. McCool, great to see you. Thank you for coming over. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here. And thanks to Bradley. It was a great uh, learning experience. Absolutely. Lots of great information there. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.